0: We've now come to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 to 25. Hebrews 13, 20 to 25. This is entailing the benediction and exhortation. Final benediction and exhortation. Now, may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing To do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory for ever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your holy and righteous word. We know, Lord, that it is the saving word of God and it is the sanctifying word of God. Thank you for all of its truths. And thank you, Father, for this moment that we can study this portion of your word more in depth and understand better the true gospel, the gospel that has saved us, and the gospel that sanctifies us. Thank you for this opportunity. We ask you to be pleased with our meditation upon this section. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this is the final part of this letter to the Hebrew Christians. Here in verses 20 to 21, we have a benediction, and then in verses 22 to 25, an exhortation and farewell for the people. Now, when we say that verses 20 to 21 is a benediction, a benediction, the word itself, it's not a word that we use very often, but it is a word that literally means good word. Bene and diction, a good word. And this good word is a word of blessing, usually, as it is used in our Christian context. And not only as a blessing, but as a prayer. So this is a prayerful blessing or good word that is intended from the one who speaks it or writes it to the recipients. It's a prayerful blessing that is wished upon, prayed upon those who receive it. That's what a benediction is. That's what we have in verses 20 to 21, and it's not the only place where this kind of thing occurs. There are various other places, especially in the letters of the Apostle Paul, There are usually benedictions at the end, but sometimes in other places, even in the middle of a letter, there may may be a benediction. This is, in the New Testament, very commonly the case, but it's also very commonly the case in many parts of the Old Testament. A final farewell, a final desire and prayerful concern for the recipients to have the blessings of God. That's what we have in verses 20 to 21. But also, not only do we have that in verses 20 to 21, in our case right here, we have a synopsis, we have a summary, we have a concise statement here of the gospel of Jesus Christ in verses 20 to 21. The gospel is here in a very succinct place. The gospel has been explained throughout this letter, but now he does so here and wishes for this gospel, prays for this gospel to be truly manifested and persevering in the recipients, the Hebrew Christians. And this is also meant for us. So so now let's see, as it begins in verse 20, how he explains this gospel. Now, may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. You may notice that in my reading of it, even though the New American Standard Bible does not use the word May, M A Y, I have inserted it there because I believe it clarifies and makes it more distinct as to what's happening here. He's not just ex- uh, asserting or indicating something, he is actually praying or wishing for it. And in doing so, and this is valid according to the Greek language and even the Hebrew language in many places. Even though your Bible translations in many places do not insert a may, I believe in many places it should be inserted for the sake of clarity, for the sake of us who are reading it. It becomes more clear as to what's happening. He is wishing and praying, desiring this God of peace to give this blessing to them. So look at it that way. Now may the God of peace, which means he's calling on the God of peace to do so, he's Beseeching and praying, petitioning the God of peace to do this for the believers. And notice also, the God of peace. This is God the Father. He's speaking of God the Father. Although Christ is the Prince of Peace and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Peace who brings peace and unity and harmony, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, He does that. In this case, He is specifically, I believe, addressing the, the Father, God the Father, as the God of peace, because then he's saying the God of peace does so-and-so through Jesus our Lord, who is the Son of the Father. So the God of peace. Now, when we speak of God being the God of peace, he is the God of peace to the church, to his people, in certain ways. He is the God of peace to his church or his people, his, shepherd, or his sheep, In certain ways. He is that in the sense, he is the one who reconciles us through Jesus Christ between us and God. There was animosity, there was enmity, there was strife, there was alienation between us and God. But God, in due time, reconciled us, and instead of there being conflict and warfare between us and God, Instead of being foes of God, now we're not foes of God anymore, now we are friends of God. Now we are redeemed, we are reconciled. He brought us, we who were alienated from Him, and brought us to be a part of His kingdom. We were foreigners to Him, and now we have become citizens of His kingdom. Now we have peace because we belong to the God of peace. So first and foremost, we who were alienated and we who were at odds with Him, at war with Him... He has made us peacekeepers. He has made us recipients of peace and keepers of peace between us and him. Secondly, we become peacemakers with one another. We become peacemakers with one another. When we had strife with each other, in our families, among our friends, among our co-workers, wherever we have gone, whenever we had been people who were those who were contentious people, those people that did not try to get along with everybody, those who did not look for the best interests of others, whether in our family or outside of our family. We did not used to be that way. We did not have that inclination or that proclivity to do so in the way that we now have. Now we want to live at peace with other people. Now we do want to be pursuing their best interests. Now we do want to love our neighbor as ourselves to love the brotherhood. We do want to do those things now, and those things are characteristic of those who have peace between us and God, now share that peace, now demonstrate that peace, who live in harmony, seek to be harmonious and peace-loving with other people. We're not seeking warfare. We are seeking peace now with others. We're not seeking strife, but we are seeking reconciliation. This is what it means when... John the Baptist's birth was announced in Luke chapter 1. When John the Baptist's birth was announced in Luke chapter 1, at verse 15, we'll read 1.15 to 17. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. So there's the reconciliation between the people and God. And then 17, between one another. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In verse 17, there's peace with one another. Verse 17. He turns the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That is, when the gospel of John is believed, which is the same gospel of Christ, when that gospel is believed, it not only brings reconciliation, verse 16, between us and God, but also between one another, verse 17, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. Instead of being contentious people, disagreeable people, we seek to bring peace and reconciliation. This is the God of peace who has worked in us, and this God of peace will continue to work in us. And this is what he's praying, that this God of peace who has reconciled us between us and him and between one another may continue to do so because it has not happened perfectly, because we sin daily against God, and also we have much more to do in seeking peace and reconciliation with the people that we know. And we desire that, and we want that. And this is the God of peace who is able to give it in His time and according to His will. Now this God of peace is further explained and identified in verse 20. God the Father is further explained as who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. He brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Why is it there that he brings up the resurrection of the dead, that Christ was raised from the dead? He brings up this resurrection of the dead because it is the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, all implied right here, all implied. It is this one series of incidents that took place over, over a period of three days His crucifixion or His death, His burial and resurrection, that is the focal point, that is the center, and that is the basis of the covenant, the eternal covenant that He mentions in verse 20. It is the basis of God's application of the benefits we enjoy, the forgiveness of sins we have, it's all based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's why he mentions it here, and this is why we as Christians are always thinking and always talking and always sharing when we share the gospel about the true meaning of why Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's what we have here. This is the God who brought up Christ from the dead. So he reminds us of the gospel by that statement. And also... The reason specifically that he brings up the resurrection of the dead, he brought up from the dead, the great shepherd. He brings up resurrection because that's where the power of Christ or the power of God the Father is manifested in its supreme way. Yes, his power is manifested in creating the world. His power is manifested in sustaining the world. His power is manifested in the many miracles throughout the Bible. His power is manifested in transforming us. But where is the focal point, where is the central place where his power is manifested? It is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in the resurrection of Christ. This is where it is supremely explained, uh, supremely manifested. Look, for example, at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. 118. Ephesians 1.18, we have another prayer, another prayer on behalf of the people. One eighteen, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only In this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There also, the Apostle Paul explains the resurrection of the dead, where we have this strength of the might of the power of the Father demonstrated, manifested, displayed for us. So that just as we know Christ was raised from the dead, now we also will rise from the dead and we will enjoy all the promises of God that are fulfilled in the raising of Christ from the dead. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He will come back again, receive us into heaven, give us an immortal body, and we shall live with him forever and ever. All by the mighty power of God that raised Jesus up from the dead. Even Jesus said in John 14:19, "Because I live, you shall live also. Because I live, I will rise from the dead, you also shall rise from the dead and receive all of the benefits for which he came into the world." That's what he's promising and reminding us of right here that he rose from the dead. And who rose from the dead? Verse 20, Hebrews 13:20. The great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. It's not just anybody who was raised from the dead. We know in the scriptures there were various people, a handful of people, raised from the dead in the scriptures. But in this case, we're not talking about a kind of resurrection that was a resuscitation, that is, a mortal body that died and then that body was raised up from the dead and then died again. We're not talking about that. We're talking about an immortal body that was raised from the dead in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We're talking about a specific person. And here he is the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd. There are many shepherds. There are physical or literal shepherds, those who take care of sheep and raise sheep, Then there are spiritual shepherds in the scriptures. The spiritual shepherds are sometimes those who rule the nation, the leaders of the nation. They are called shepherds, often in the prophets that happens. But then the spiritual shepherds are those who have the charge, those who have the responsibility to help the people in their spiritual life, to guide them and pray for them, to teach them in their spiritual life. And in terms of our spiritual life, it's not the pastors or the elders of the church that he has in view, because the greatest pastor, the greatest elder, the greatest spiritual leader of the church is Christ himself. That's why he's called the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the one as a shepherd of our souls who truly has a concern for us to lead us and guide us into the right way. It says in Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. Who is that Lord? The great shepherd. It is Christ. Even in John chapter 10, 10, 10, and 11, he calls himself the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, two twenty-four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, That we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Christ is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And he is this and manifests his desire and love for his sheep by dying for the sheep. He dies for his sheep. And this is why he is the great shepherd of the sheep. He shows his love, his concern for them by protecting them, by dying for them, and enabling them to have eternal life. Now, the question arises right here. He's the great shepherd of the sheep, and we are speaking of his death and resurrection. Did Jesus die, was his death and resurrection for the sheep and the goats, or only for the sheep? Did Jesus die for every individual who ever lives, so that they benefit from that death? Or did Jesus die only for the sheep, so that they are the only beneficiaries of his death and resurrection? When he says the sheep, is he saying that every individual in the world, if it depends on the individual, he could become a sheep? Is he saying it that way? Does he mean it that way? I don't believe he means it that way. Let me illustrate. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Our Lord speaks of his own ministry and the ministry of the people for which he came John chapter 10 and verse 11 John 10:11 I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep He calls himself the good shepherd and he lays down his life for the sheep and he does not say, I lay down my life for the sheep and the goats. He just says, I lay down my sheep, uh, my life for the sheep. That's what he says. Now, some have objected and said that, yes, he laid down his life for the sheep, but it doesn't mean he didn't lay down his life for others also. Well, we will see in this context that when he says the sheep, he means only the sheep. He doesn't mean the sheep, as though it's sheep and goats, he means only the sheep. Verse 14 I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. I he's the good shepherd, like it says in Hebrews 13, he's the great shepherd, he is the good shepherd. I know my own, so he knows who his sheep are, and his sheep know who he is. That means. They know the voice of their shepherd, the dear voice of their shepherd. 15, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. There we have it again. Now, in context, he means only the sheep. We'll see this. Look at verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. I have other sheep, verse 16. Who are these other sheep? Universally, interpreters understand the other sheep to be Gentiles. There are Jewish sheep and there are Gentilic sheep The Jews and the Gentiles come together as one flock under one shepherd. That's what he means in verse 16. I have other sheep. And he says, which are not of this fold, but I'm going to bring them into this fold. They're going to come together. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. Notice how he's speaking in verse 16. Are the Gentiles, even who live in his own time and in the time of the apostles, have they believed yet? No, they have not believed yet. But he calls them sheep even before they are believers. He calls them sheep even before they are believers. His own contemporaries, Christ's own contemporaries and the apostles' own contemporaries are not In the fold yet, but he's calling them sheep. He's calling them sheep. And then verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Which reiterates the Father who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, let's continue with this train of thought in chapter 10 as the apostle John has explained it. Now, after he explains these things, he goes to the feast of the dedication where some of the same people were there. In both incidents, in chapter 10 and then in chapter uh, ch- chapter 10 verses 1 to 18 and then in chapter 10 verses 22 and following. And notice, at the feast of the dedication, Verse 22, at that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. As though he never told them plainly. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, there Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Christ says in verses 25 to 26 that He clearly told them and they don't believe. Now, why don't they believe? Verse 26 explains, You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So that means that if they were the chosen sheep of Christ, then they would have believed. Meaning, they would have heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit would have converted them, and they would have been clear members of the fold. They would have been clear sheep. But they're not manifesting that, and they keep on saying, tell us if you're the Christ, we don't understand, you never told us clearly. They keep on complaining like that to him, and why do they not believe? Because they're not of his sheep. If, if it depended upon faith or belief to become a part of the sheep, verse 26 would say, but you are not of my sheep because you do not believe. You are not of my sheep because you do not believe. But verse 26 doesn't say it like that. It says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So if you are the chosen sheep, you will believe. But if you're not of the sheep, you won't believe. So this is Christ making a clear distinction and meaning in this chapter, chapter 10, that he laid down his life only for the sheep so that they would believe. And if they don't believe, they're not of the sheep. And not only that, look at this assurance he gives us in 27 to 30. If we are a part of the great shepherd of the sheep, if we belong to him, he's not going to let us go. 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The father and the son are one and no one can snatch them out of their hands because of their power. Speaking again of the power of God, the power of God prevents us from ever perishing. The power of God prevents us ever from being snatched out of their hands. The power of God does that, which means the devil cannot convince us and rip us out of the hand of God. The devil cannot do that. If we belong to the Father and to the Son, they will protect us and cause us to persevere, to understand His voice, to follow His voice, to know Him, and never, ever perish. Eternal life is our destiny. Hebrews 13, 20. He he is, in that sense, the great shepherd of the sheep. He redeems us and us alone. He gives us all of the promises of God to us alone, and He ensures that we believe And endure until the very end. That's the sense in which he is the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, how or what is the basis, what is the purchase price of us being redeemed? Verse 20 says, Through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. He's saying specifically, it has to do with the blood of Jesus our Lord. He had to come into the world to shed his blood. He had to come into the world because God had ordained, God appointed that our redemption would not take place just on a whim or just by a word. Our redemption would not just take place merely because it was an obligation of God. It would not take place because God is bound by certain laws or certain requirements in the universe that He Himself created. No, it doesn't happen that way. God ordained That we would be saved by blood, by the blood of His only Son, His only begotten Son. Only by that means would we be saved. And why is it the blood? It is the blood because it is where life resides. Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. He was teaching the people that the animal sacrifices of blood were necessary as a symbol and representation that your life depends on your blood. But even our life, depending on our blood, has its greatest manifestation or greatest purpose in the blood of Christ, so that God would send His one and only Son into the world to pay the penalty, to have His life taken away from Him based on His pure blood, His unblemished blood. You see, in our case, our blood, because it is a part of what belongs to us, is blood that is impure. Our blood is blemished. Our blood is not good in terms of its spiritual or moral relationship between us and God. Our blood is impure blood, but not the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is spotless, unblameable. Notice Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7.26. 7.26. Our blood and even the blood of all the priests of the Old Testament could never do what his blood did. Hebrews seven twenty six. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law, appoints a son, made perfect forever. The Son of God was made a perfect sacrifice forever for you and me. That's why the blood of Christ is so important. And no one should ever, no matter what we think of blood, no matter what we think of the thought of it or the announcement of it when we share the gospel, no matter what... We think of it when we have songs, when we have songs, Christian songs that mention the blood. It should not be something that is undesirable to us. We should not dislike it. We should not refrain from using the word because the blood of Christ is this important to us. This is the price of our redemption. The blood of the only begotten Son of God. We should boast in it. But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 6.14. It is the blood of Christ. May we never be ashamed of that. Now, this blood, what is it a part of? Here it says it's a part of the eternal covenant. The eternal covenant. It's called an eternal covenant covenant. This eternal covenant is the same as the new covenant, which was explained in Hebrews chapter 8, 8, 9, and 10. This covenant, this eternal covenant, is the same as the one means or the covenant of grace, the one way that anyone is ever saved from the time of Adam and Eve until the end of the world. It is this eternal covenant. We speak of this eternal covenant in different ways. The Bible speaks of it also in different ways. It speaks of it as eternal covenant, everlasting covenant, new covenant. It speaks of it as the covenant of peace. These are various ways the Bible speaks of it. If we read books outside of the Bible that explain this and describe it from the beginning to the end of the Bible, those books usually refer to it as the covenant of grace, covenant of grace, though the scripture doesn't use that phrase, yet that phrase is a biblical phrase, or or that, that concept is a biblical concept, and we should not refrain from using that word. Just understand that even though it's not a word or phrase found directly in the Bible, the concept is there. For example, in Acts 20, 24, it speaks of the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the grace of God. Which grace is also mentioned in our passage in verse 25. Grace be with you all, or may grace be with you all. This is the grace or the covenant of grace. But now, specifically, our apostle has used the word eternal in verse 20. Eternal. Why does he call it eternal? He calls it eternal here because it has to do with what God did in eternity past, before the world was created, during the time of the world, and forevermore, eternity future. be Before all time, now, and forevermore. That's why he calls it eternal. Notice with me, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. After mentioning the gospel, he says this in verse 9. 2 Timothy 1.9 who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. From all eternity. Which means he's saying this salvation, this calling is a holy calling, which means it's specific to us, the sheep, It's not because of our works, not because of the good things we do, but according to what? His own purpose and grace, therefore covenant of grace, his own purpose and grace, which was granted us. If it was granted us, given to us, it's gifted to us, we don't deserve it. And how? In Christ Jesus from all eternity, which means what? Before the world was created, from all eternity past, he means, before the world was created, God appointed, God ordained, God purposed, God covenanted, God decreed to have our salvation be this way. Before the world began, then revealed in the world, and then applicable and permanent for all eternity future. This is the redemption That we have. That's the the reason why the apostles calls it the eternal covenant, and why in other parts of the scripture it's called eternal or everlasting covenant. It's that decree or that purpose, that covenant that God has established for our redemption, and of course it's in Jesus our Lord, and it's in Jesus our Lord. And also verse twenty one, he says through Jesus Christ. In Jesus our Lord and through Jesus Christ. In verse 20, he explains our salvation, which is through Jesus our Lord or in Jesus our Lord. Specifically, Jesus our Lord. Our salvation is completely dependent on Christ. Then in verse 21, when he says it's through Jesus Christ, he's talking about our sanctification. How we are made holy. How we grow in Christ's likeness. How we are conformed to His image. So it's in Christ that our salvation is dependent and it's through Christ that our sanctification or our holiness, our Christian discipleship and growth are dependent. It's only in Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation and sanctification, which shows that the gospel is not just intended to have us have a guaranteed eternal life. And after we have eternal life, And as people say, just receive Jesus into your heart. Just accept Christ. If you just pray a prayer, if you just come to the front, if you just get baptized, if you just write your name on the tract, if you just pray based on a prayer in the tract, if you just do certain things like that, then you are guaranteed heaven and there's nothing more for you because you've already received Jesus as your Lord but that's not the case. Verse 21 will say the opposite of that. It will say the opposite of that. Anybody who is saved, and saved only through Jesus Christ, no other religion, that salvation does not end there. That salvation continues to work in the new believer, in the new convert, in the new disciple. It continues to work in that person according to what is said in verse 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. And in the same way, the commandments of Christ are prayed for or wished upon the recipients of this letter, which includes you and me now, because God is still working in us. As he was working in the Hebrew Christians of the first century, he's working in us. And in what way? Verse 21. How is it that God works in us? His prayer, notice, if you'd like to summarize this, the, the prayer is, May the God of peace equip you. That's the prayer. May the God of peace equip you. That, if you boil it down, that's what he's wishing. He's praying. May the God of peace equip you. And the other parts are explanatory to that basic prayer. May the God of peace equip you to do everything. So, What does he mean and what does he say in verse 21? May the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will. It requires the God of peace to equip us, which means we were ill-equipped before that. If the God of peace does not equip us, whatever we do is not good. Because he's saying, equip you in every good thing to do his will. If the God of peace does not enable us, does not give us that capability, give us that strength, give us that wisdom, give us that knowledge to do every good thing, we're not going to do good things. If he doesn't give it, it's not good. If he gives it, then it is good. James, James 1.17 Every good thing Bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. By his word and his will, he made us first fruits, he made us precious first fruits among all the creatures and this happened because the good thing, the perfect gift, first originated in heaven and came down to us. Here he's reminding us that beforehand the things that we did, we did not do because God equipped us because we were ill-equipped. We were ill-equipped because the only resource we had was our own flesh or the world or the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil, those were the only resources we had. Those were the only powers we had. We did not have the power of God in our life. And everything that we did was not a good thing, but was an evil thing. Yes, evil. He hasn't mentioned this for the first time in our chapter. He has mentioned this earlier. Notice, chapter 9. Chapter 9. Verse 14, chapter 9, verse 14, he's explained the, the impotence of the blood of goats and calves. Then verse 14, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Dead works to serve the living God. That's why he calls it now every good thing. Our works were dead works. They were evil works because of the evil conscience we had. We did not have proper ability, proper knowledge, proper wisdom because God was not working in us. But once God worked in us to give us a new heart, a new conscience, then we are equipped to do every good thing. But we're not perfectly equipped, correct? We became equipped, and our life began to change, but it has to continue to change. That's why he's praying here in verse 21, may the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will. We have to continually do so. None of us are perfect. None of us are sinless. We cannot believe that. We have to believe that we are Gradually and progressively overcoming sin throughout our life, until our last breath, until we meet Christ face to face. We must constantly be equipped in every good thing to do His will. Then, notice, to do His will. Who did we seek to please before? We sought to please ourselves before, or we sought to please one another before. We've desired to do that which would benefit us the most with the people around us. We desire to do our own will. But at this point, now that we are converted, and now we are seeking to grow in Christ's likeness grow in holiness, we seek to do His will. His will now has become sweet to us. His will has become precious to us. His will has become desirous for us. Does it not say in 1 John 2, 17, the one who does the will of God abides forever. The one who does the will of God abides forever. Jesus said in Matthew 11, uh, 11, 28 to 30, that those who do his will, his load is light. It says, his load is light. He has a light load compared to doing our own will. Now, if we do the will of Christ, it feels different. We have excitement. We have enthusiasm. We we are not beating ourselves and, and wondering, why do I have to do this? No, when we learn what Christ wants of us, then we say, I delight in it. I want to do it. I delight to do your will, O God. Just as Christ said that of the Father in chapter 10, Five to seven. Now we are saying that because we have a new heart since we are in Christ. We want to do His will. So we cannot say, we cannot say, as many say, well, I'm a Christian and that's it. Now I can live my life the way I want. That's not possible. It's not possible for anyone. And in fact, the true Christian doesn't even think that way. A true Christian says, now what does God want me to do today? What does God want me to do in every moment? Of everything I see, everything I say, every place I go, whatever I do, what does God want me to do? We seek His will. That's the new heart that does so. Further notice, in 21, even though He's saying He prays for God to equip us in every good thing to do His will. Who is it that's going to ensure that we do His will? We are supposed to do His will, but how is that going to actually come about? Verse 21, if He equips us. And in verse 21, when God works in us that which is pleasing in His sight. When God works in us that which is pleasing in His sight, which returns to this fact that it is God Himself who from the beginning of our salvation, before the foundation of the world, during the time of the world, and after the world is destroyed for all eternity, He is the one who's going to work in us to ensure until the very end that this happens. He will work in us. Let's see examples In Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. From beginning to end, Philippians 1, 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began the good work will perfect it. So none of the sheep will come out or be stripped out away from the hand of God or the, from the hand of Christ. God who began the good work in us he will perfect that good work and continue working in us that which is pleasing in his sight until the day that Jesus Christ returns. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2:12 2:12 So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here he exhorts the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for it, but work out which means manifest it, display it, produce fruit that relates to your salvation with fear and trembling. So there is the obligation that we have, similar to Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. But notice in verse 13, Philippians 2, 13 is like Hebrews 13, 21, which says, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. These are promises, and these give us hope that what God started in us, He is going to continue in us. It does not depend ultimately on us, though God (laughs) exhorts us to believe, exhorts us to repent, exhorts us to obey. Ultimately, the Father will ensure that from beginning to end, before the foundation of the world, And after the world is destroyed and the new heavens and the new earth, we will be with him and dwell with him forever. Because he's going to give us a desire to do that which is pleasing in his sight. Which too reminds us, we used to do that which was pleasing in our own eyes. We used to do that which was pleasing to the people whose favor we desired. We used to be people pleasers. We used to be pleasers of our own passions. We used to be like this. But now, our concern is to please God. Whatever is good and right in the sight of God, that's what we desire to do. He's taught us to do so. The new believer and the believer throughout his life seeks to do God's will and to please him in every way. 21. Concludes, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Glory to God forever and ever. Amen. We live for the glory of God. This reminds us of this. Why did God create the world? Did he create the world so that we might have the supreme pleasures of the world? Did he create the world that everyone might submit to us? Did he create the world so that we could do and live as we please? Did God create the world because he really was a lonely God and this lonely God wanted something to do in creating us? Did he create the world because he wanted to manifest love towards someone? He actually wanted to manifest love toward us. He wanted to do it. He needed to do it. He couldn't sleep because he couldn't do it. So he created the world. People think this way, but that's not the case. He created the world for his glory. He created the world that we might manifest his glory and then return that glory, display that glory, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. We might live for his glory forever and ever. So then whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, let us do to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 And as it says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is a very important doctrine. The love of God... Or even the justice of God is not the main reason that God created the world. The main reason is not for God to manifest His love or desire love from us or anything like that. The main reason He created the world is for Him to be glorified. For Him to be glorified. And this will be forever. And He says, Amen. Amen is not actually an English word. If we have not studied this word, it's not actually an English word. It comes from the Hebrew language and then into the Greek language, then from Greek in the New Testament to our English language. It is one of the few words in the Bible that is actually transliterated instead of translated. If it were translated, the word Amen would be translated as faithful or sure or right or truly as a way of expressing agreement with what was just said. Affirmation and agreement with what was just said. That's what the word amen does. He's saying here that whatever he has just said, he believes it to be faithful, he believes it to be true. He's giving his affirmation to what he just said, so that with that affirmation, we also might affirm the same, to say amen. That's what amen is. We could compare this word amen in terms of transliteration to the word shalom. We know in English, because of the common usage of the word shalom in Christian circles, that shalom means peace. Shalom means peace. But shalom is a transliteration from Hebrew into English. If we were to say um, a translation of the word shalom, we would just say peace. Uh, I I wish you shalom. Well, I wish peace to you. Same thing. So shalom or amen, these are transliterations. And that's what they mean. Now, we come to the final part. That is the exhortation or a reminder of the exhortation in verses 22 to 25. An exhortation but also a farewell, a reminder here. Now, notice in verse 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. He urges the brethren to bear with this word of exhortation. He urges them because an exhortation contains both an encouragement and a warning. It's easy for us to listen to the encouragement not necessarily always to believe the encouragement but it's easy for us to bear with listening to encouragement. God is the God of peace and he wishes peace for you. God is the God of hope and he wishes hope for you. God is the God of reconciliation and he wishes wishes reconciliation for you. He's a God of grace and mercy. It's easy for us to hear those words and to receive them into our hearing and into our minds even if we don't actually believe that he is a God of grace. It's easier for us to hear them But in an exhortation, such as he's written here, he has filled this letter with many warnings. He has filled this letter with many warnings, starting in chapter 2 and going on through chapter 13. Many, many warnings. Warnings that if we hear these truths, we better believe them. If we hear these truths, we better repent of our sins. If we hear these truths, we better believe what it's teaching us about the true gospel of Jesus Christ and how we should live in accordance with them. Correct? Just to use one example, chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 4. He says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Right there at the last part, verse 4, after the command of verse 4, the first part, the last part of verse 4, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Well, that's a warning. That's a warning intended to keep us alert and awake. God will judge. That's the part that people don't want to hear. And the scriptures. All over, and even in many places of the New Testament, and throughout our letter, in the letter to the Hebrew Christians, in this letter, there were many, many warnings. There are many, many warnings in Scripture. That's why he says in verse 22, I urge you, bear with this word of exhortation. I urge you, don't say, Well, I don't like that. It didn't sound right to me. I don't want to think that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to say that. I don't want to live that way. And then it might become a discouragement. It might become a distraction. And we might say, it's not very important. You, you preacher, you leader, you elder, you're taking this too seriously. And the warning does not need to be taken so seriously. But that's why he says, I urge you. I urge you, don't take what I'm saying lightly, both the encouragement and the warning or the punishment. Don't take any of this in that way. Now, this reminds us also, an exhortation includes both because he's using this expression, word of exhortation, to describe what he has written in this whole letter. And it includes both. It includes encouragement and admonishment, encouragement and warning, consolation and condemnation. It has both throughout this letter. Furthermore, we notice that this word of exhortation is not only in written form, as it is here, but it is also in spoken form, which is what we do. We do not write Scripture, correct? We do not write Scripture because the Scriptures are contained here in the 66 books of the Bible. But the spoken word, the sermon, the homily, is also a word of exhortation. Notice Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, verse 15, Acts chapter 13, verse 15, Thirteen fifteen. The apostle has been on a, on a journey, a missionary journey, and he enters a synagogue and the synagogue officials um, permit him or invite him to speak a sermon. To share a word from Scripture. And notice 13.15. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. There's our phrase, word of exhortation, same as Hebrews 13. If you have a word of exhortation, say it to the people. For the benefit of the people, say it. So, it says in 16, And Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said. And he continues, and he preaches a sermon. He preaches a sermon. And in the sermon, the first part of it, he has an, ex- uh, he has an encouragement in the sense that God, in many ways, did good things for the people and prepared the people for the coming of Christ. He promised the coming of Christ, and he prepared them for the coming of Christ. And then at the very end, he has a warning. In verses 40 and 41, he has a warning for them that they should not be like their predecessors, like their ancestors, and reject the words of the prophets, but believe the words of the prophets. So a word of exhortation is both written and spoken in The religious context, in the assembly, in the congregation of the people of God. And it is the spoken one that pastors and leaders, elders, shepherds of local churches, they seek to exhort the people with this spoken word, the oral word. And also notice in 22, another reason they might have a desire to disregard this word, he says, for I have written to you briefly, now, you think you might think, well, this was a long and complicated letter, Apostle. You might think, this was a long and complicated letter. I can't understand it, and I don't want to figure it out, and it was too long. I don't want to read it, or read it in one sitting. I don't want to do it. But he, he, he says it's a brief one, because he could have written much, much more. He could have written, as the Apostle John says at the, book of, at the end of the book of John, Twenty-one, twenty-five. he says there that if he were to write everything that Christ said and did, he says, using a hyperbole, he says, the world could not contain the books that would be written if I were to tell you everything that Jesus said and did. So I have to write to you briefly. So in a sense, there is so much more knowledge, so much more wisdom, so much more truth that could have been written even in the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but we have a brief description in parts and the whole of what it means to know the true and living God and to be reconciled to him. So in that sense, don't let the length of this letter of Hebrews or for that matter, any other part of the Bible discourage you, but rather may it encourage you to pursue the knowledge of it. further he has some farewell, encouragement, and greetings. Verse 23, Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. Timothy, he calls him our brother Timothy. Now, because of this, this is one of the reasons, many reasons why scholars think that it is the Apostle Paul ...who wrote this letter, even though he does not identify himself at the beginning of the letter. Which view, I think, is, of all the different views as to authorship, I think that is the best. This was written by the Apostle Paul. But notice here, too, he says, Our brother Timothy, he's been released, which means Paul was, or the Apostle here, was in prison. And Timothy was in prison for preaching the gospel... But for whatever reason, Timothy has been released and the Apostle wishes to be released and he thinks he will be released. We don't know if he was, but he thinks he will be released. And together with Timothy, the Apostle and Timothy will go and see the believers to whom this letter was addressed. What does this teach us? The Apostle himself is a true Apostle writing the truth. Timothy was a true brother And the two of them would go from place to place to go see other believers to encourage the other believers in the faith. They were reliable, trustworthy men with the true gospel who went from place to place in order to encourage the believers, the remnant scattered throughout the Roman Empire, to also continue and persevere in the true faith. I'd like to show from one passage, from Philippians chapter 2, the kind of persons who should be the missionaries and preachers of the gospel that we send from place to place. Not just anybody, but this kind of person. Philippians 2.19. Philippians 2.19. This will describe Timothy. Philippians was also written by Paul in prison. He says, But I hope... In the Lord Jesus, to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he serve with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall be coming shortly. Both in Philippians and in Hebrews, he's in prison, and he hopes to accompany Timothy to visit the Philippians. He wants to visit the Philippians. He wants to visit the Hebrews. Notice the character of the Timothy he sends. Verse 20, I have no one else of kindred spirit, a like spirit, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. I'm not going to send just anybody. I'm going to send somebody who is genuine, who is sincere and and is concerned for how you're doing. Because other people seek after their own interests, not after the interests of Christ Jesus. And typically, the false ministers of the gospel, the false preachers and teachers, they are seeking after fame and fortune. Typically, those are the two. Fame, fortune, and fun. And and what will they do with their fame? What will they do with their fortune? They will pursue their own fun. So fame, fortune, and fun, that's what they pursue. They don't pursue Christ and the things of Christ. And then he says, the the person of a true character is one with a proven worth. You know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. You know. So that shows that people need to be on guard and on, on watch to see who was behaving in true Christian character and who was not. And those are the ones who have a proven worth who should be appointed, who should be commissioned, who should be sent out to preach the gospel and encourage the other Christians in other places around the world. This is the kind of brother Timothy was. And this reminds us that if Timothy is that way, then we should be that way. If Timothy was that way, we should be that way. We know eventually he became a pastor, an elder of the church at Ephesus. The letters to Timothy are the same Timothy as written here. He became a pastor. He was following or with Paul as a missionary, but eventually he settled as a pastor in Ephesus. These are the kinds of men that we should be raising up to be ministering among us and ministering in other places after they have genuinely proven their worth. Verse 24, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Now this greeting is not just mere hello, hi, how are you doing? This greeting is more important or more in-depth than that. The greeting for the leaders, including elders and deacons and the rest of the saints, all the saints, this has to do with wanting for them to genuinely have this mutual Love and respect for each other, and to have uh, notice of each other, knowledge of each other, so that they could pray for each other, know about each other's well-being, as as he said in Philippians 2. He wanted to send Timothy to the Philippians so that they might know what's actually going on, they might actually be able to help them and take care of their needs. And in fact, 24, those from Italy greet you. So it's mutual. It's mutual. Not just the apostle, but all the saints there from one place send greetings to the saints of another place because the desire is to have one mind and unity and harmony together. 25 ends the letter. May grace be with you all. May grace be with you all. It is the grace of God, as we saw in 2 Timothy 1.9, that started before the foundation of the world. It's the grace of God that continues to work in us by His, His desire to do in us that which is pleasing in His sight, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. And it is the grace of God that will remain with us for all eternity and the reason that we will bow our knees before the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and worship them forever and ever. Grace that saved us is grace that sanctifies us and grace that sustains us for all eternity. Or eternity, Salvation, sanctification, and sustenance or sustainment throughout all eternity. It is this grace. And this is the grace we should always wish for others to have. Yes, grace all the way, from beginning to end. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.